hopefully pray together as a congregation where the Spirit of God would lead us uh, in His Word to dedicate our time. Another book. We like to start at the first part of the book and go to the end of the book. It's just uh, finding which book. <laughs> there are 66 to choose from, and, and so it's, it's hard to choose. Uh, so be praying that the Spirit would direct in that. I do have some ideas, but uh, it's not settled yet. Uh, but this morning, I want to direct us to uh, one of my favorite passages, and I'm sure probably for many of you, one of your favorite passages. It's found in the book of 2 Corinthians, and particularly, we'll be looking at verses 3 to 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 3 to 6. And this is appropriate at any time, but particularly, I've thought of this passage in light of, well, to be quite honest, my own soul's desire to think more about what it means to treasure Christ. And there were several passages in my mind, but this one kept rising uh, to the top. But also, particularly as it's not only an important passage in our understanding of what actually happens in salvation in terms of our new understanding of Christ, but also as we think about this Christmas season as we worship him who was in the manger, the Son of God incarnate, who would grow to be a man without sin, who would give his body as a sacrifice, who would be buried and three days rise again. Forty days later, ascend to his state of exaltation where he is now as we await his return in power and glory to establish his kingdom for a thousand years and then on the way to a new heaven and a new earth. He is our glorious Savior. And Paul addresses that, one aspect of that, in our passage this morning. And as it relates to Christmas, our experience of the Christmas season is different for different groups of people. For many, the Christmas season is a time of joy, it's a time of Christmas parties, it's a, it's a spirit of happiness, of warm feelings, good memories, family, and maybe even for times that aren't experienced throughout the year, religious kind of stirrings. Those are the ones we know who show up to church on Easter and show up to church on Christmas or maybe some other special occasion like a wedding or a funeral, but outside of that probably wouldn't be found in the doors of any chapel or church building. But they are during Christmas, and they do hear the Christmas story. And it is something that, for them, is a, is a good memory. It's a, it's a time to think about uh, the grace of God and the goodness of God, however it is understood. It is interesting, as a side note, you probably understand this, but for many, Christmas season is a time of great depression, too. The pressure of gifts and family and relationships and so forth. But... Nonetheless, as, uh, as, uh, in our culture, it's generally seen as a, as a happy time. And some in this first group, for whom it is this happy time, but it's not a regular part of their life, and by that I mean the worship of Christ, they'll go to church because it's the right and the traditional thing to do. Uh, many will sing hymns and enjoy them, and many will take a real pleasure in the mood of the season and even think good thoughts about the sweet images of Christ as a baby born in a manger, a pure child, the holy child. And will even revel in thoughts of how that demonstrates the love of God and the, the goodness of God to us. But they'll finish the holiday season with another year of good memories or some just glad to have it over because of all the pressures. And after that season, just kind of go on and continue in life as they experienced it before pursuing their job, family, interest, whatever it is, but not much thought about what they heard during the Christmas season and the messages and the music 
other than, again, good memories that they'll look forward to next year. For others, however, it's a different experience. The same joys of the season will be had. There is a certain kind of happiness in the air, generally, culturally, uh, and with people, and, and so forth. But the content of the songs, and the content of the messages, and the content of the cards, and the content of the time spent together reading Scripture will have a different a different effect. It'll strike a different chord in their hearts. And that will be that the reality of sin, the reality of a Savior, the reality of a glorious Lord crucified and resurrected will be the truest and most powerful and most influential and the most moving reality of the season. It'll be a reality that stirs deep devotion to Christ, that provokes wonder at God's faithfulness to his promise and grace to such a sinner. And the songs and the scripture and the spirit of the season will be a sweet balm to the soul as it's remembered God's faithfulness in the past year. And it will be an encouragement to obedience and righteousness as we think of the year to come. So these two different experiences of those who will fill churches this Christmas season. And these two experiences are simply and profoundly the difference between an unbeliever who is a stranger to grace... And a believer who has tasted the kindness of God in Christ and delights in that glory. For whom Christ is a loved Savior who is at the heart of their devotion and their hope. Paul addresses this reality in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 to 6. And essentially what he addresses is this. What is the difference between the gospel appreciated, the gospel admired, the gospel understood intellectually, and the gospel believed, and the gospel embraced, and the Christ loved? And it is simply this. For a true believer in the gospel, there is the glory of God in Christ that captures the soul. Christ is a treasure. The gospel is a message that we never tire of because it tells of a Christ that we continually love and we continually love to hear of. For the unbeliever, it's anything but that. At best, it's a nice story. At most, it's a religious duty. But Paul addresses that reality here in our passage. Let me read uh, verses 3 through 6 of chapter 4. And then we're going to look at this simply under two broad categories. One is the glory of Christ concealed. And the other is the glory of Christ revealed. It's a natural division of the passage, and so we'll take it that way. So read with me. Actually, let's begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 7, the first part of verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God... But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so here it is. Paul begins in our passage with this striking acknowledgement 
that for many and for some, the glory of Christ in the gospel is concealed. It is an unperceived reality. It is an unperceived reality. And so the first point is this, that the wonder of the gospel cannot be perceived by everyone. The wonder of the gospel and the glory of Christ cannot be perceived and appreciated by everyone. In fact, it cannot be appreciated, it cannot be seen, it cannot be loved, it cannot be believed by anyone left into a natural state. Paul said that earlier, the natural man does not understand the things of God. So any of us left to our own state, inherited by Adam, will hear the message, will hear of the glory, and will not care for it, will be unmoved. And this is what he says first, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled. Now, why does he say this? Well, first, because we're kind of jumping into the middle or the first part of a book. This is a statement of Paul, first of all, in defense of his ministry. Paul is writing to defend his ministry against false teachers who would accuse him of being ineffective in his speech, of speaking in a way that confused or clouded or muddied the waters of God rather than bringing clarity. And they'd say, well, look at the fruit of his ministry. It's not as large as it should be. The problem is with the apostle. They'll later accuse him of other sins, such as his motive of acting out of greed, such as questioning his apostleship and the way that he came to receive that office by the risen Christ. They were set out to undermine his ministry. And so Paul, in a statement here in chapter 4, verse 3, but really, which he began in chapter 3, we'll look at in a minute, is defending his ministry and saying, yes, the gospel is not believed by all who hear it. The glory of Christ is not embraced by all who hear it because the gospel, for many, is veiled. It's veiled. It's a veiled reality. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, an earlier letter to this same church, that he came to them and he knew nothing but Christ crucified. He came to them in weakness. He said his message came, though not with persuasive words of wisdom in verse 4, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. They're speaking to believers who had experienced the call of God to see this glory. They came to see this glory not by impressive speech, which is again what the false teachers accused him of lacking any oratory skills. But it was going to come only by the work of God. But to the rest, it would be veiled. He said earlier, to the Jews, it would be a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it would be foolishness. There was no expectation that they would receive his gospel. That everyone who heard it would receive it as the truth of God and of the glory of Christ. And so Paul's reminding the Corinthians and us through his letter... That the response to the message of Christ is not responded to by all because not all are able to perceive it. There is a veil, there is a covering, there is a hiding over their soul and over their mind that makes them unable, unable to perceive anything of glory in the message. And in some ways, this is 
Paul paralleling or reflecting Jesus' own words in John chapter 6. After he'd done a miracle, the feeding of the thousands, they wanted to make him king. After they heard these crowds, his teaching, he said to them, why do you not believe? And then he explained to them, you do not believe because only those who have been given to me by the Father will come to me. In other words, he was explaining why is there such a mixed response to the gospel? Why is it that some hear and believe and some hear and do not believe? Paul is saying, why is it that some see the glory of Christ in it and some do not? The simple statement is that for some, the gospel is veiled. It's veiled. And so the wonder of God's grace in Christ is missed or even by some mocked as foolishness. And so the reality is that many hear the gospel and will, especially this Christmas season, as mentioned in church services, as Christian messages. You ever notice when you go, sometimes, even still, you can walk through the mall or a store and you hear these gospels Christmas songs, speaking of the incarnation, speaking of the atonement, speaking of the glory of Christ as king. And so you have masses of people who are hearing the gospel that way. And again, the masses that will go to a church service. But again, in hearing all this, they will not be able to perceive anything wonderful in it. Anything wonderful about Christ. Nothing wonderful at all. Certainly nothing that would elicit faith. He said that this is, this is really a parallel to the Jews themselves. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, we use great boldness in our speech, speaking confidently of the glory of Christ. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. He's referring to that account in Exodus, where Moses would go outside of the camp, and he would meet in the tent of meeting with God in some form, some manifestation. And this meeting with God would cause Moses' face to shine with a kind of glory, and it intimidated the Israelites as they would see him. It, it caused them to be fearful. And so Moses Moses put a veil over his face, and that's what he's referring to here. But it was, a, it was a fading glory on the face of Moses. But the glory of Christ that is revealed through Moses and in Scripture is not perceived by these Jews. He says, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Moses didn't want them to see it. In one part, they were afraid. In the other part, Moses wanted to keep that for himself. He says, but their minds, in verse 14, were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. So Jesus said to them in John 5, you read the scriptures to the Jews, Jewish leaders, because you think in them you have life. Can you finish the rest? But it's these that reveal me. But you don't want me, he says, because in John 5, you are only interested in receiving glory from one another. And you do not want to receive the glory that is from the only God. You want a wrong kind of glory. But it's there. Christ is there, but he says there's a veil. They read, they memorize, they hear, but they see no glory of Christ in it. And sadly, that is the case for many. It's not merely the Jews, but it is many who fill even the church pews every Sunday and even on Christmas. Scripture is then for these, for 
whom the veil lies over their heart, a closed book. We won't go there. You could mark it down. Isaiah 29, he says, you read, but you don't understand to them. You're people who have the book, but it is like a closed book and it is of no benefit. You can't perceive and respond to everything that God has revealed there. And so Paul is saying, yes, some will hear the gospel, some will read of the gospel, but it will be to them a veiled reality. Now, why was it for the Jews? And I'll just make mention of this. Well, there are essentially two reasons, and these reasons hold true, not just for Jews, but for every unbeliever, ultimately. Why is the gospel veiled to them? Well, for one, because of self-righteousness. And for another, for the love of sin. It is because in the case of the Jews, just using them as a paradigm for unbelief, he says, you read the law, you study the law in Romans chapter 10, he says, because you think there you have your own righteousness. And you're not looking for the righteousness that comes from God alone. He says, they have a zeal for God, but seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have rejected the righteousness of God. The righteousness that is found in Christ, who is the end of the law. And so the Jews have self-righteousness in the sense of what he's addressing here, that they study the law and they think this is the covenant, this is the word of God. These are likely some of the opponents that are facing Paul. And they're saying, look, we have an unending covenant in Moses. That is enough. It is a superior glory to whatever Christ you're proclaiming, whatever Messiah you're proclaiming. That has no glory. The glory is to be found in Moses. Paul says, well... It's because you have a veil. And so it is for so many who attend church. They're not necessarily they're not studying the law like the Jews, but they come and they're satisfied in their own goodness. In fact, sometimes being in the Christmas season can just remind people of their own sense of goodness, how good they are to give gifts, how good they are to receive gifts. Self-righteousness, the only one that that gives evidence of the veil removed is one that sees there's no righteousness in ourselves. And it's a love for sin. Jesus told again the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that you have whitewashed, you're like whitewashed tombs. You have an appearance on the outside that is attractive, but inside you're full of sin and everything that is unclean. And so he says those who have this veil, in verse 3, it's a veil that lies over the heart of those who are perishing. Of those who are perishing. And that's the second part. Those who do not see the wonder of the gospel are perishing. Some will not see it because there is a veil over their hearts. And those who do not see it are those who are described as perishing. This is a process of perishing that's a present reality. And it's also a future condition for those who remain there. It's a condition again of those who do not perceive the glory of God in the gospel. Now, we all know John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The, the glorious message of the gospel is that men would not perish, that men would have life, that men would not remain in darkness, that men would have light, that men would know not God's rejection, but God's acceptance in Christ. That is the message. But again... It's a message that's not 
perceived by many, and it's those who are perishing who would choose perishing over life. And beloved, you know this, but here is a strong reality of the gospel. And Paul says this in chapter 2 of the same passage. If you open there, you could look at the same book. Verse 15. He says, we are a fragrance. Oh, excuse me. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That means wherever he went, wherever his ministry partners went, and in essence in the broader principle, wherever Christians are who are faithful to the gospel, there is the knowledge of Christ made known. He says we, in verse 15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's nothing wrong with the fragrance. There's what's wrong is how it's received. And so he says in verse 16, to the one, this knowledge is an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So it's the message. It's the message of Christ. It's the message of grace. It's the message of glory. It's the message of God's saving work. But it's a message that has two results. For some in whom the veil remains, it's a message of death to death. In other words, it's a message that's received by one in spiritual death, and it's a message that leads to ultimate eternal death. For others, it is a message of life. It is a message that brings life, and it is the message of life that brings one into fellowship with God. Know what he says next. Why is it this way? So the third point. Those who are perishing, he says, essentially are being manipulated by Satan who works through a person's own lust and self-righteousness. Look at verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, we've said this repeatedly, and I'll just repeat it again, say it once more, is the only power that Satan has over an individual is sin that is in them. That's the only power he has, ultimately. I mean, he has power to cause suffering and those kind of things, but the power to influence and to keep from Christ is only grounded in the sin that remains in a person. This is demonstrated by contrast most powerfully in Christ. He says, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Christ had no sin in him, therefore Satan had no power over him. But this isn't true of us. This isn't true of us for fallen humanity. It's quite the opposite. It is because our hearts are enslaved to sin by nature that Satan has essentially all power essentially, to influence us, to move darkened and unregenerate humanity according to his own desires, essentially. Notice what he says here in this. In whose case, the, God, the whose case refers to those who are perishing, who have the veil over their eyes. In their case, the God of this world or the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The God of this age, notice first here that Satan does have a large measure of authority granted to him over men in this present age. Scripture makes this clear. 
Christ calls him the ruler of this world. John calls him the one in whose power the world lies in in John, 1 John 5, 19. He's called the, the ruler of this world, the one who exercises an authority and an influence over this world. Kingdoms have been given to him by God. Listen to Luke chapter 4, verse 6. And the devil said to him, in the temptations, the devil's temptations to Christ, and I will give you all this domain and its glory, talking about the glory of the kingdoms. Why? For it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Jesus did not dispute that point. He did not dispute it. So he is here, in the language of Paul in this passage, called the God of this world. And we need to grasp this. We need to grasp this. He is the influencer, ultimately and predominantly, of what is sinful about culture. Not culture itself, but what is sinful and what is evil about culture. Whatever is in our culture that is opposed to righteousness and the knowledge of God. This is really striking. He calls him the God of this world. He uses the term theos, that also refers to the God of creation, the God who is. God the Father. For that reason, some hesitate to make this a reference to Satan. And they say, God who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. But that's forced. It doesn't fit the language or the grammar. So it's understood here that this is a reference to Satan. Why is he called God? And in what ways does he have this authority? Certainly, it's not equal to the true God, the triune God. But he has been given authority in this way, in that he has been given authority to exercise a powerful influence over men. And notice what he says, the God of this age. He's speaking as a Jew here in a Jewish mindset. They had a two-age mentality. There's the present age and the age to come. This is not a permanent authority has that Satan has. It is a temporary authority, and it's authority that's made known in this present age, this age under the conditions of the fall, this age under the conditions of sin's powerful influence in man. And he is the one who is ultimately worshipped in the desires and the false religion of men, and so in that way he is a god. Calvin perceptively said this, the devil is called the god of this world in no other way than that Baal is called the god of those who worship him, or as the dog is called the god of Egypt. Satan is the prince of the world, not as its ultimate ruler, but as one who exercises extreme authority. So just notice that first. Secondly, notice this. That the focus of Satan's blinding influence is on the mind, on the thoughts and the heart of men. His effort is to influence our thinking. Our thinking. We've said this, but we need to say it again. Matter of fact, a little bit later, in reference to the false teachers, Paul is going to say this to the church. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what he wants to do, is to move the thoughts of men and the hearts of men and the thinking of men away from devotion to Christ. He said earlier in chapter 10, verse 5, 
We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To the obedience of Christ. What does he want to do? He wants to influence our thinking. That is his method. How does he do that? Two ways. First is false teaching and false doctrine. That's where Paul's going right there. We just read it in 2 Corinthians 11. He said that he wants to deceive by leading minds astray. And how is he going to do that? Well, he says in verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, false teachers, other than the one whom we have preached, if somebody comes in with a different message, with a different Christ, with a different way of salvation, a different hope, a different message about the nature of God and salvation and repentance and faith and heaven and hope and the resurrection and so forth. He is the one who is an instrument of Satan. Making that up, look at what he says down. Such men, are, verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. That means a false teacher can have a Bible in their hand, an engaging smile on their face, and promise you your best things in this present life more than in the life to come. That's what a false teacher will do. They don't come with horns on their head. They don't come with a book of Satan in their hand into the church and saying, hey, let me show you a few verses out of here. They come with a Bible, and then they twist it, and they distort it, and they make it say something that God did not intend in it. They make it something that leads away from the truth rather than to the truth of Christ. And as Paul has already identified, the God of this world is behind that. The God of this world, he wants to lead your minds astray. He does it secondly by appealing to the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Paul will say that over in Ephesians chapter 2. As he's describing what spiritual death is, he says, it's this. It's when you walked according to the course of this world, the pattern and the thinking of this world. Whatever culture says is true, however it reframes reality, however it identifies ultimate truth, whatever it concedes is real or not real, he says that's what you were influenced by. That's the course of the world that you walked by. That's a measure of spiritual death. There was no outside light. There was no outside truth that penetrated your mind. You, you walked by whatever fad was there. Fads changed. Maybe you went back and forth. But essentially, it was according to a system, a world system that was devoid of true righteousness and of truth. And look at what he says next, if you're there, in Ephesians 2. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And how is he working in the sons of disobedience? What is it that he appeals to? Look at verse 3. Among them we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How is he working? He is working to create a system in which our minds fully concede to a life that is lived by whatever our desires are. For some, it could be the most kind of 
obvious wickedness, violence, and grotesque sexual immorality or whatever. For some, it could mean to simply live under some kind of religious veneer, but whereas that person lives still with them as the ultimate authority in their heart. Not submitted to Christ. It's kind of like those in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? I never knew you. You never did the will of my Father. So there's a variety of ways in which he does this. But he appeals to the lust of the flesh that we indulge the desires of our mind. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. If your heart leads you in a different way than scripture, well, that's okay. Because it's about seizing it for yourself. That's the garden, isn't it? That's the garden. Seize your own way. You're the master of your own fate. Go, go that way. Pursue your dreams because by hard work you can accomplish anything for your own desires. That is what he, he does. He appeals to you. Although speaking specifically uh, of sexual obsession of our culture and primarily speaking to believers, the point of Satan's blinding tactics through our contemporary culture, and particularly as it relates to entertainment, is captured by John Piper, I think, in a book that we've had in the library. It's very good. It's called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. There's different authors, but in one chapter, he writes this. It's very helpful. He says, my conviction is that one of the main reasons the world and the church are awash in lust and pornography is that our lives are intellectually and emotionally disconnected from the infinite soul-staggering grandeur for which we were made. Inside and outside the church, Western culture is drowning in a sea of triviality, pettiness, banality, and silliness. Television is trivial. Radio is trivial. Conversation is trivial. Education is trivial. Christian books are trivial. Worship styles are trivial. It is inevitable that the human heart, which was made to be staggered with the supremacy of Christ, is instead drowning in a sea of banal enter entertainment. And so will reach for the best natural buzz that life can give. Sex. But we could substitute other things for there. Certainly we have a pornographic culture and that's a part of it. But you could put in any, anything that is idolatrous, anything that place, takes the place of Christ. The point here is how does, how does this God of this world blind the minds of the unbelieving? One is to simply capture them with a consistent glory of what is trivial, of what is passing. We live in an entertainment-driven culture. Entertainment, the idea to be passively entertained and pleased, is almost considered in our culture a divine right, an entitlement. It certainly is value to entertainment and rightly used and enjoyed. But when it becomes this consuming and culture-shaping reality, you have a whole generation and generations of mindlessly being influenced in a direction that the God of this world wants them to go. And Paul here describes that as a blinding of the mind, a blinding of the mind, making it unable to see a glory in Christ. And it's worthy of note here, there's a lot, of course, that could be said about these things, but it is worthy to make one note here, too, that God, as an act of judgment, and no doubt using the instrumentality of the devil and his minions, he also hardens the heart and blinds the minds of men by giving them over to natural lust and sin and the rebellion of their heart. 
Here it's attributed to the direct effect of that cause, the one who is the immediate agent of those things, the one who is responsible as the source of this evil. But at times, he's used even for the purposes of God, for those who reject the truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he says this, and here he's looking to the rise of the Antichrist, but listen to what he says. Then that lawless one will be revealed from whom the, Lord, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because, listen, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why? Because Satan had blinded their eyes to live according to pleasure. To see no glory in the message of the love of God in Christ. But rather to see it in the indulgence of every sinful desire. And so God sometimes is the ultimate agent to direct Satan to fulfill his will and even in the judgment of men. But the source of that wickedness, the efficient cause of that wickedness is who here is described as the God of this age. Third, notice this, that the evidence of this blindness of being under Satan's sway is this. It is unbelief. It is unbelief. They don't believe the gospel. He says the minds of the un believing do you believe the gospel do you believe it do you believe what god has said about the eternal son of god taking on flesh do you believe that he was the one crucified for your sins do you believe that he's worthy of all worship he says here the ones who are under this blinding influence are those who do not believe it's of the unbelieving and This doesn't mean some intellectual belief that I acknowledge those facts as being true. I don't don't believe in the God of Islam. I think the Bible is true. I come from a culture where that defines the culture in the South for many. Sure, the Bible is true. The question is, do you really believe? Do you believe the gospel of Christ in such a way that it causes you and elicits out of you a faith where you commit your life to him? Where the gospel and the truth of the gospel and every truth that flows out of the gospel shapes your worldview, your mind, your affections, your purposes, your goals, your understanding of reality. That's that's the mind of the believing. The mind of the unbelieving can have an intellectual knowledge, but it doesn't shape them. It doesn't shape that person. But what is really at the heart of this? And this is the last point under here. And we're only going to get to the first part. I actually intended to get all the way to six, the good news. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's finish this thought here. What is, it, what is it that is behind this blinding work of Satan? What is it? Well, he says it here most powerfully. He says this so that, and, he, and he, this is the purpose. This is the purpose of, uh, of Satan. This is the end that he's aiming at. In the blindness of men. He says, so that they may not see. And see here has the idea of perceive, understand, taste, get it, if you will. He says, so that they may not see 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So those blinded by Satan, and here's the final point, blinded by Satan's manipulation, see more that is desirable, more truth, and more glory in the world than in Christ. Christ is to this person uninteresting or boring, or he is nothing special, or for some, even offensive. And so this is the final and ultimate litmus test of our hearts. Is the glory of Christ more precious to us than anything else? Is the glory of Christ in the gospel a a glory that is worthy to cause us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him? None of us do that perfectly. And we all, even true believers, stumble along the way. But at the base of the heart, at the deepest part of your soul, do you see that worthiness of Christ that says, I may fail in my application of this, but that is who I am and what I see as the greatest desire of my heart is to follow him. Is Christ more attractive and more glorious in the world than your own agenda and plans for life and then your own pursuit of pleasure? That's the question. It says in Philippians, Paul does this. He says, whatever things were gained to me in chapter 3, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing. Value has the idea of treasure, what is worthy, what is gripping, what is meaningful, what is the most significant truth. That my soul embraces. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that I would know him and the power of his resurrection. So it's as simple as this. For those who have a veil over their heart, for those who are blinded, Satan makes everything more attractive in the world and within ourselves than Christ, who is the image of God. So watching Netflix for an hour or two or three or four or five or six or more, or watching YouTube videos one to the next to the next to the next, or doing really anything else, maybe it's not even related to the internet, is far more appealing than spending an hour with your Bible in the presence of God. I mean, we we all struggle with that. This isn't a guilt trip. This is to say we have to realize what is operating and influencing our soul. And here Paul is saying that for some, they, they hear this message and there's a veil, and that veil means that Christ is just uninteresting to them. I mean, what are we to make of large crowds of thousands and thousands of people who will listen to Christian music and weep and cry, cry and wave their hands this way and that and then be bored to death with doctrine and a message of Christ and an hour-long sermon and think, please, please, don't make me stay here any longer. Let's get the guitars again and the music. What are we to make of that? I don't know. God knows their hearts, but we certainly can say that That's bothersome. It shouldn't be that way, right? We can at least say that that's not what God is intending to produce, as we'll see next week. But here it is. It is that everything else is more attractive. That is to say that Christ 
as the image of God is the perfect reflection of God. He is a revelation of the holy character and the glory of God. It's all reflected in him, and that's what is revealed in the gospel. It is not a problem with the message. It's not as though the message lacks glory. It is not as though Christ lacks glory. It is not as though the message of grace lacks power and wonder and majesty. It is that he says here, some just can't see it. Calvin again said this, if I could borrow a lot from him. He says, the sum is this, that the blindness of unbelievers detracts nothing from the clearness of the gospel, for the sun is not less resplendent that the blind do not perceive its light. And so that's what Paul is defending here, essentially, and saying, look, you're accusing and saying me and saying the problem is me, that I need to change my message, that I need to change my tactics, that I somehow need to have more oratory skill, that I somehow need to appeal to some desire within the hearers. And that's what will cause more people to come to my message. That's essentially what they're accusing him of. And Paul says that's not the issue. The issue isn't in the message. The issue is in the hearers. The issue isn't in the glory of God in the face of Christ. The issue is that there are some who cannot perceive that glory. That's what he's saying. And so, by application, at least on this part, we'll move on to the rest next week is what is it that we find glorious? And particularly this Christmas season, as we come and we sing hymns, it's wonderful to find joy in all of the festivities. We all do. We have so much fun and enjoy being together, and we laugh and we eat, as we always do when Christians get together. And we enjoy fun games, and we give gifts, and we have family, and those are all wonderful gifts and blessings that we should enjoy. But what is the ultimate joy? What is the ultimate joy? What is it that our hearts are really longing for when we sing the hymns and when we hear the message? Well, hopefully we would seek from God that what our hearts would ultimately be satisfied in and long for is to see this glory of Christ. We would ask him and say, God, show me this glory. Help me to see it. Make sin less attractive to me. Make this world less attractive to me. Make make the things that are temporary, less appealing to me, and show me the glory of Christ. Show me this. Show me your image in him in a way that it captures my soul, in a way that it means more to me than anything else. And forgive me for letting other things have a place of idolatry in my heart. That's a message we need to hear. I need to hear it. Make Christ precious to me. Help me to learn the discipline of setting aside those things that are trivial, that I might pursue those things of substance and glory of Christ. And so that would be an application for us. One is to know our own hearts. One is to understand why do people respond differently to the message of the truth. And third is to pursue that knowledge and ask God for it. Ask him for it. And ask him to show that glory to those we love, to our family members who don't yet see it. Ask him to be the one who shines in their heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for you, for me.
And we're going to leave it there for this week um, and, and pick up the positive side of this next week as we look at verses 5 through 6. And the glory of the message preached and the wonder of the heart of that message in the heart who's been made to see the glory, this glory of God. Let's pray, and then we'll have John come up and lead us in just a moment in a closing hymn. And again, please, if you can, come to uh, the village afterwards. Uh, we will be singing some hymns. We'll have, uh, I think Mike is going to give a gospel message, a short message, and uh, just a chance to interact with the people there. You know, I just had like a 1 Corinthians 14 experience here. Uh, you know, if one prophet speaks, then there needs to be another. It needs to be confirmed. Can anybody confirm? Where's Linda? Do you confirm that message from Mike? There she is. She did. All right. We're good. We're safe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, please, uh, they would love to have you in their home, I'm sure. Uh, let me pray, and then John will lead us in closing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And the reality of sin is not hidden from us. The reality of the one who opposes our soul is not hidden from us. You did not reveal this to us for our harm, but for our good, to clarify our thinking, to help us understand ultimate realities and not be swept up into what uh, was shown to be just the superficial, the banality of this world, but to live for those things that are true and truly glorious, to live for Christ. And so capture our hearts with the revelation of Christ in Scripture. Capture our affections with those things that our souls were made to be enlarged by and satisfied in, which is namely your glory. And conform us to that image of glory continually and continually until we more and more reflect the image of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.